Welcome to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast, brought to you by APT Capital Group, where Kyle and Lalita talk to top experts and seasoned passive investors in the business to help provide clarity and key insights to keep you safe on your journey to financial freedom. Our goal is to help you get educated on how to create passive income for you and your family using real estate as your vehicle. If you enjoy the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. Now, here are your hosts, Kyle and Lolita. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate Podcast. I'm your co-host, Lolita, also joined by Kyle. Before we get started, please make sure to head over to our website, aptcapitalgroup.com, and grab our free Passive Investor's Guide. Also, if you're interested in learning more about what we do, you can schedule a call with Kyle on our website as well. All right, let's get into our show. We have Chris Roberts joining us today. Chris, welcome. How's it going? Thank you, Lolita. Fabulous. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, before we head into the interview, here's a little bit about Chris. Founder and CEO of Sterling Rhino Capital LLC, Chris has been a full-time entrepreneur and investor since 2007. He owns and operates a sales and marketing company that, when acquired, had annual sales of $7.2 million in 2007. By 2019, Chris and his team grew that business to $24.5 million. Chris holds investments or shares in over 2,100 units across the country and recently closed on a 112-unit in Georgia and 104-unit property in Virginia. So Chris, just to let you know, I had to cut down your achievements <laughs> tremendously or else I would take up a lot more time on your intro. <laughs> Needless to say, we've got an experienced veteran on our hands today. So I'll let you take it from here. And could you please tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself and what you currently do? Absolutely. And, and thank you for the intro. I appreciate that. Yeah, today I'm still an entrepreneur. I love the the creative process and the challenge of going out and building something. I'm a firm believer in team. And today we, as you stated, have lots of passive investments as well as our own uh, GP acquisitions that we've taken over. I have single families, duplexes, and I'm currently well diversified. I'm also a partner in a software company. So today we're just expanding our portfolio and teaching others and just really passionate about what we do and, and as well as giving back to the community. Awesome. Well, thanks for the background. And today we're going to talk about a specific 112-unit deal, which you've never really talked about a specific deal. So I'm excited to dive in here. First, tell us a little bit about the deal and how you found it. So this deal came to me through a different group, actually, originally. And through the due diligence process, I, I had realized fairly quickly that the deal wouldn't work at the current price, which was actually negotiated down. I was on that team for a little while and, and realized that it, it just wasn't a it wasn't a, a situation that was that was going to work out. Let's, let's just say that. The, the team was kind of unsure about the deal. The price wasn't quite right. Everybody was under the impression that there was no way to negotiate more. And the team started to sort of disintegrate. And I, I was still there. I happened to sort of build a relationship with the broker. And as the deal fell apart, I came in and, and was presented an opportunity. Later on, it was out of contract for four months to take the deal back on if I could close it. And uh, and then we worked extremely hard for a long time after that and got the deal to close with a slightly different team dynamic. Okay. And tell us a little bit about it, the location, size, maybe unit mix, and, and some of the things you liked about the property. 
Yeah, absolutely. What stood out most was it was extremely low rent. And I knew that the deal could work as soon as I saw it at the right price, which is is pretty common with any deal, right? Is, you know, if you can get the rents right, the value add component and get the right price, you can you can generally make something work. It was just the belief at the time that nobody could get the price down. We thought, okay, well, then if we can't get the price down, it, it's going to fail. So it was in a little bit rougher area of town, an original owner operator for 35 years, they built it. And I thought, well, there's probably just a tremendous amount of deferred maintenance and lack of good management because the owners had, had kind of stepped back a little and the sun had kind of started to take over. And so I just saw sort of a diamond in the rough, if you will, and thought, this is just going to take a tremendous amount of legwork and determination. But I just, I felt there was something there. And that's why I kept pushing. What was your biggest challenge in getting it to the closing table? Yeah, great question. Uh, there, there were a lot of challenges mm-hmm. in this deal. But what stands out most is the originally the layers of people between me and the seller. I eventually got to a point where I started negotiating directly with the seller. And he and I were communicating multiple times a week. And we eventually brought the deal to close together. But we had almost, there was three brokers actually originally in this deal, multiple layers of team members. I was the investor relations guy at first and wasn't even really dealing with the brokers directly. And so that was the first challenge. The second biggest challenge was that there were no digital records on this deal. And that created all kinds of challenges. And and I'll probably get into that a little bit later, but those are the two most dynamic situations that really, really almost cause us to bail on the deal many times. Okay, let's talk about the not having digital records. So what did you do? How did you go about it? I mean, I've seen, you know, with off market deals, typically, you're making unsolicited offers, maybe without even a rent roll or or financial. So I know it's doable. But what were some of the challenges with that? How did you end up actually going to the closing table without seeing financials? Because that's a difference, right? We can make offers without maybe seeing them, but actually closing a deal without seeing them, you know, how does it work with the lender? And what are other challenges along with that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and we all know because you, you guys have closed some good sized deals as well. When you get that wonderful fancy package, it's pretty easy to throw that into your SDA or spreadsheets and kind of quickly analyze and determine is this worth a visit, right? Uh, or taking the next step and putting in the letter of intent and then putting together your person's sale. On this deal, what stood out most, again, was the original owner-operator, the deferred maintenance, and the low rents. So I thought, well, this warrants a visit. Went there, saw the property, and thought, okay, well, there's something here, but we need to get the price down. But what it boiled down to was figuring out, okay, now that we get the price down, how are we going to get all of these documents for the lender, right? Because price is one thing. So what we did is just sort of meticulously broke down how would a lender look at this deal? How could we possibly get to the finish line? And it boiled down to a few things, as you know. It boiled down to the T12, the uh, P&L and or rent roll, possibly bank statements. But on the surface, there was none of that. So all I did was by the time I started working with the seller, say to the seller, do you understand what these things are? And found that many of these things, he didn't even know what they were. And that was part of the communication problem in the beginning. So I said to him, let me send you some samples of what these are. And let me explain to you how you can fill in this data. So he had to go in and and pull this manual data out of some of his records. I mean, when I went there, I visited the property four times. He had boxes and boxes of records. Everything was handwritten. Now, the good thing is that he had meticulous handwritten records, but none of them were digital. So I built him a manual T12. I built him a rent roll. I built him a sample P&L and said, can you simply pull this data 
and fill it in for me and worked through that with him for months and months and months as we updated for the lender and then worked with the lender brokers along the way and asked them, is there anything you see here that's not right? Is there anything I need to work with him on? And then he would certify everything by signing it and filling in the data on his own because you can't, you can't fudge this stuff. You have to go buy the book. You can't just throw numbers in to get the lender to give you the, the note. You have to make sure the seller does all of that, but you can guide them along the way. And that's part of the process I went through. Yeah, I love that because those are things that other people are not going to do. They're not going to help a seller with a T12. They're just going to move on to the next deal. You spent that additional time, which is eventually why probably he went with you as the buyer because you established that relationship and you helped him. You added value to him. So kudos to you on that. How about the brokers? When did they exit and, and did they actually still get paid on commission here? Or how did you kind of circumvent that? I'm a very determined individual. And for me, it's not about like the short-term reward. How much am I going to make? How much are you going to make? Why aren't you pulling your fair share? To me, it's about the win and just accomplishing the goals. And the whole way I told the brokers, look, I don't care who gets involved in this thing. I just, I can see where the pieces are missing. I can see where we need to fill. And if you guys just let me take charge of this thing, I'll make sure everybody gets taken care of. I just need you to kind of, kind of work with me and let me just take the lead on this thing. And for whatever, reason, we just had a good enough rapport where they said, well, we feel, they literally felt a little guilty. Like, well, can we get involved? But I said, you can, but the seller's getting frustrated. And it was just, it was such an odd dynamic situation. And so in the, at the end of the day, they ended up getting their full commissions. The seller and I worked everything out literally to the last minute. I flew in there I think it was a week before close and had final negotiations with him in the office. We literally had this contentious face-to-face standoff on this last-minute negotiation where the seller told me, yeah, basically I'm lying to you and I'm not going to do what I said I was going to do. And then I left there actually with a slightly better negotiated deal and we made more money on the close than we would have had he just taken the first deal. We would have never done that had all the brokers been involved. Now you need the brokers. That's that's not what this is about. You need them, but it was such a unique circumstance with this seller and the way he did things that it needed to be very delicately handled. And for whatever reason, he and I just developed this incredible rapport. So I I honestly can't even explain it. It was just through determination and, and hard work and visiting him and calling him all the time that we built that. And it just worked out great for everybody. Yeah. Again, I mean, you flew out there and you met with them face to face, right? Instead of doing it over the phone, which is tough to build rapport sometimes. So that went a long way, I'm sure. So talk about the negotiation. I think you mentioned it's maybe this was before when we were talking, but about a $1.3 million discount. Is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So why did you ask for that discount? First of all, Yeah. So for me, it's not about what someone's asking for something. It's about the value proposition. It's about when that value exceeds price, people buy. When it doesn't, they don't. And what that means to me is you're listing it at 5.2, but I don't don't care about that. I care about the data. I care about the neighborhood. I care about the bank and what they're going to look at, right? We were fortunate on this deal where it appraised at 4.4. We bought it for 3.9, ended up getting it at 3.875. But the original asking price was 5.2. So as I said, when I first went in there, I noticed the price was just way too high. The original group had negotiated it down to 4. Point, I believe it was 4.875, but that was still way too high. And so as I, as I looked at this deal, I thought, well, I could maybe make this work at 4, 4.2. And as we negotiated back and forth, I realized, wow, well, they, they really came down in price because they're sellers. They had quite a bit of equity. And I knew it was about their needs and wants and just figuring out how I could accommodate that. Right? It wasn't about they're asking 5.2 because if you have 4 million in equity, let's say, in a big building, what does a 5.2 mean? 
right? I mean, if you have a ton of equity and you're 85 years old, maybe you don't care as much about that, but your broker's telling you to list it at that. Who knows, right? So as we started diving in, I got to this lower price and then COVID hit. And COVID created a whole new dynamic, right? Because we negotiated this from like October to, to June and we eventually closed in, I believe it was September, right? So we're negotiating through COVID and that caused us to go down a few more notches. So it wasn't like I was just constantly beating them up. Lots of things were, were injected into the deal. There was some things that were uncovered during due diligence. And as we went back and forth and the rapport that I had with the seller, he understood because I wasn't telling him just shave off money. I was articulating my position and trying to show him why I felt that it was worth it for both of us to come to terms. And we did. Worked out great. Awesome. Talk a little bit more about those negotiations. How did they go? And, and, you know, what is the process of really going the right way about negotiating? Yeah, I think it's really understanding the other side. You know, a book I read years and years and years ago, um, How to Win Friends and Influence People, mm. wasn't really about influencing people. It was more about understanding people and then putting yourself in their shoes. And that's really what it boiled down to on this deal. I thought, okay, well, I know where I need to be, which means it's likely that other syndicators are going to need to be there as well if they're savvy, because they're going to dig in right? Which means if I can articulate with this individual where he's probably going to be, but eliminate the headaches of starting over and dealing with someone else, perhaps we can come to a common denominator and and make a deal happen. And so the back and forth was, okay, here's your asking price. Here's what I feel the property's worth. Okay, why? Well, here's why. It's going to cost me this to do that, right? Of course, also digging in and understanding what the utilities were, what was in the rears, what the debt was and how much equity was in the building. What was the motivation behind the sellers? I dug in and got to know, I mean, I researched the entire family. I wanted to truly understand everybody in this process so I could understand perhaps what the motivation might be. They owned other assets and that made me believe, well, maybe they just want to dump this off and they just don't want to deal with it. They've got other stuff to deal with, right? Mom's 87. So again, all I did was lay it up in a way that made sense for everybody and created a win-win. But it takes due diligence. It takes understanding the other side. You can't just ask them to shave 500000 off because you want it. You have to have a story behind it and make it make sense. Yeah, makes sense. So what is your ultimate business plan with the property? What is the CapEx plan? What's that look like? We had about a $550,000 budget. We raised a little bit more than that. And our original plan was really kind of threefold because we didn't know once we got in there what was going to really maximize the performa. Being that the rents were so low, they were $550 a month and market rents were $785. Outside of a mile of the property, the rents went up to $900. So there's tremendous upside. So as we went in, we had figured we could put $2,500 in and just cosmetically dress up the interiors, some floors, paint, and so on. Or we could maybe renovate half the units at full boat, 55 to 6,500. Or we could spend a couple hundred thousand and just dress up the outside, raise the rents to 650 to seven over, say, a three or four year period, and still hit a really nice return for investors. Right now, we're testing that. So we found there was an additional apartment up above the office. We're turning into an actual livable apartment that will bring in about $9,000 a year in income. We have pet fees, and we've been raising rents substantially because they're so far below market. Just by dealing with deferred maintenance and the tenants are sticking around, we have a 1.5% vacant after the first two months. And we've raised rents on about 20 units at, I think we're up from 550 to 650 on those units. So tremendous upside there. So we're still feeling out that plan, but we, we raised 550 to, to do the CapEx. Yeah. Deferred maintenance is such a huge factor in keeping your residence. We had it at one of our properties. It's the first thing we tackled. I mean, there were 
dozens and dozens of work orders just backed up for months and months and months. As soon as we tackle that, hit the deferred maintenance, and then improve the curb appeal, 14 of the 16 month to months ended up staying, you know, and paying the, the new rent. And I think that's a, a strategy that we love to use. And it sounds like it's working for you as well. Yeah, it's been fabulous. You know, and it's funny, I just wanted to touch on something because you asked me earlier about, you know, digging in and, and just this deal and negotiation and all that. And it was funny, I heard you two on a podcast long ago and I heard about you and you, I, I honestly couldn't even remember your names a while back, but what inspired me was what you guys did and traveling late at night and going to these properties and just building the rapport. And, and it stuck with me. And I thought, man, those guys are just like me. They're out there hustling. They're doing everything they need to build the relationships and close the deals. And that's really what all this stuff boils down to is, are you willing to do the things others are not and mm-hmm. really, really hustle for the end result, the marathon, not the short-term results? Like, well, I'm just going to get a big deal and close it overnight. No, you got to build thought leadership platforms. You got to spend lots of countless hours driving. You got to keep hustling and believe and, and you can make these things happen. So I just wanted to give you two a shout out because I heard you again later on a podcast and I thought, man, those two are just like me. I heard those guys before and I love them, man. That's great. I just, you guys are so inspiring. Oh, that's awesome. Thank you, Chris. I appreciate that. Ditto. Ditto. Most of your deals that you're doing, are these off off market or on market deals? We shop everything. Obviously off market deals are best because they haven't had a chance to to hit the market and, and, you know, get into a bidding war bid up. But the only way to get off market deals is have really good relationships with brokers in those specific markets or do your due diligence, maybe just by chance. But we have a pretty good thought leadership platform, good websites, good teams with track record and credibility. And so when people look us up, they know, okay, these guys are capable. And what helped me initially was all my business experience. So before I really got into the multifamily space, I had a pretty dynamic business background. And so people could see that on, in my record. Okay. And so do you do any type of direct to seller marketing or is it all really through brokers? We were talking to someone earlier and, you know, he is a broker and an investor, but he still says that 95% of the deals being sourced, whether they're on market or pocket listings or off market are still through brokers. Do you believe that? Yeah, I believe it's a really high percentage because, you know, I get calls all the time on my properties. You know, someone tracks me down through yep. skip tracing or whatever. And, and I'm like, yeah, whatever, you know, and, and I ignore them constantly. But if my broker said, Hey, Chris, you thinking about throwing that property in the market? Hey, Chris, I got somebody who it's just much easier to deal with. And so I, I do believe that brokers are the way to go. They are a valuable resource, even though sometimes maybe it can get a little cumbersome. And this was very unique because we had the seller, you know, owner seller or whatever, owner operator seller. Uh, but no, I, I think br- brokers are, are critically important and definitely the number one way you're going to find these deals. Yep. Anything else you want to cover on this 112 unit deal specifically? I would just say, you know, you got to believe in your numbers and you got to believe in yourself. You know, this, this deal, I had someone else ask me, like, I would have given up a long time ago. Why didn't you just give up? And I'm a fighter. I'm a firm believer in the numbers. And obviously you don't want to waste your time. But if you think about the amount of time you put in and just kind of calculate it, let's say it's 300, 400 hours. Well, if your manpower hours, so to speak, or woman power is $75,000 that you would have spent, right, on closing this deal. But after five or six years, if you were, let's say, the majority owner of this deal with equity and value add and everything else, you could put four or $500,000 in your pocket. Well, that's a pretty darn good return on your money. But you don't feel that way when you're putting 350 hours in, or in your guys' case, when you're driving 12 hours, 10 hours to Arizona all night long and getting beat up and getting ignored. But then once you close the deal and five years down the road, you look and you see, aha, that was why I did all this. So, you know, I would just say on any deal, specifically a deal like this, 
don't give up, but follow the data and the numbers and put in the work, put in a tremendous amount of work and it should pay off if you do it right. Yeah. I mean, real estate investing or being an entrepreneur is the exact opposite of a W-2 job, right? You, you get paid for your time uh, in a W-2 job. Unfortunately, in uh, this real estate world, you do not really get paid for your time up front. It's all about you know long-term building and, and beginning with the end in mind, which is kind of what you were doing. So kudos to you again uh, for doing that. All right. We're going to get into our final four questions with Lalita. Are you ready? Absolutely. This podcast is sponsored by Bullpen. Bullpen is an online marketplace where you can find and hire top-notch commercial real estate analysts on an hourly or part-time basis to support your deals. The analysts on Bullpen have various skill sets from office brokerage in Topeka to multifamily development in New York and everything in between. We use Bullpen as a second set of eyes on all of our underwriting. Find your next analyst using Bullpen at www.bullpenre.com. Use our promo code APTCAPITAL when you sign up to receive a $100 credit towards your first hire. All right, Chris, what is the one tool you use in real estate investing that you could not do without? Well, number one would be maximizing my team. I built a very good team early on, but definitely in close second, because I got to get this in, is good CRMs and systems. And that encompasses a lot, but team and then systems for sure. Can you tell us a story about your biggest mistake in real estate investing? And what is the main takeaway for our listeners? I have been very fortunate to not lose a significant amount of money in real estate. I came pretty close on a business transaction. I lost like 20000 which to me at the time wasn't a lot of money. But it's that I didn't take action and, and build a vision plan earlier to get into the larger asset space. I, I played around with the single family stuff a little too long. What is it that you need to do now to grow your life to the next level? I need to work on the work-life balance part. Uh, I'm very passionate about what I do, and I love my wife. I tell her every day, uh, but we definitely don't take enough vacations. We definitely don't take enough time to just relax. We both grind and run businesses on top of our regular careers that we have. Two of my partners, fortunately, are full-time multifamily, which is spectacular, but I really need to work on that a little bit because it's definitely a healthier lifestyle to, to meditate, get your mind right, and, uh, and take more time for yourself and your family. Right. And Kyle and I couldn't agree more. <laughs> and finally, Chris, where can people find out more about you? Well, you can reach us at sterlingrhinocapital.com. I encourage you to download our investment calculator where we compare the stock market to multifamily. It's great. You can reach me at chris at sterlingrhinocapital.com. We love YouTube. We've got videos all over the place there and we're uploading constantly. And then we've got uh, Sterling Rhino Capital Investor Think Tank on Facebook, or you can reach me personally on LinkedIn. Great, amazing achievements and congrats on all the success so far. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with our listeners today. Thank you, Lily and Kyle. I really appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please go to iTunes and leave a rating and written review to help us grow and reach more listeners. You can also go to the Passive Income Through Multifamily Real Estate group on Facebook so you can connect with Kyle and Lolita and ask your questions that you want them to answer on the show. Subscribe too, so that you can get the latest episodes. Lastly, to stay updated, head on over to aptcapitalgroup.com and sign up for the newsletter. If you're interested in partnering with Kyle and Lolita, sign up on the Contact Us page so you can talk to them directly. 
Thanks again for joining us. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode.